This is Steve Kim and Wesley Huff. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hey, everybody, welcome. To this episode, today's edition of the AC Podcast, Wesley and I are back. This doesn't happen nearly enough as much as I would like to see happen. So this is a real treat for us. Welcome, Wesley. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, you've been keeping pretty busy over there in Toronto. So we, do you want to tell our listeners what you've been up to lately? Yeah, I've had a, a number of things going on. The listeners who are our regular listeners, they'll know that I have academic studies that I'm doing here at the University of Toronto, and that's taken on a, a different stage with my writing and research, and I, I've been able to TA a couple of classes at the University of Toronto starting in September and then um, ending in December. I was TAing a class on uh, a seminary class, a graduate-level class on the Gospels, Mm -hmm. uh, so that was really fun. had a lot of great opportunities to share with the students about the reliability of the scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, and just pull out a lot of meaningful things from the text. And actually this semester, I have the, the unique opportunity to TA an online class in apologetics with my uh, um, my friend and, and friend of the Apologetics Canada, Andy Bannister. Oh, really? Yeah, so we're doing doing that. It's a little bit different of an experience because everything is online, but I've been over the past couple of weeks moderating some of the online discussion and going through Alistair McGrath's Mere Apologetics book with them. And, and so that's just really fun. So that's been both time consuming, but I've been really enjoying that. And on top of that, combined with my own writing and research, I've had a lot of great opportunities to speak even just this week that we're recording this, Steve, last night I spoke at Ryerson on the problem of pain, suffering, and uncertainty. Tomorrow night I'm doing a talk at York University on uh, the reliability of the Bible, why we can trust the Bible. And then Friday, as part of the Power to Change uh, Ravi Zacharias International partnership of the Relevant series, I'm giving a talk in the afternoon on uh, religious pluralism. Do all ways lead to God? And uh, really looking forward to those. Uh, there's been a, a number of talks that I've did in, in the fall and the winter um, at Waterloo, at Guelph, at Queen. So it's just busy, but it's been really great to have the opportunity to reach out to hundreds of students and present a clear, concise case for the Christian worldview and show them the gospel present who Jesus truly is. That's great. Uh, one really great thing about where you live, Wesley, is that there are a lot of different schools, different universities where you can speak. And, and it's so, I don't know, for me, it's so encouraging to see you speak into the lives of so many students because they're going to be our future leaders of, of the society, really. So it's really exciting to see you get involved in that way. You're 
uh, research. You're writing, starting to write your doctoral dissertation, I'm assuming. What is the research on? Is it something that we mortals can understand? Yeah, well, it's on the early transmission of the New Testament text. So between the 2nd and the 4th centuries, how the New Testament, after it had been written by the original authors, guys like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, Jude, James, those guys, how that spread throughout the ancient world and, and what that can tell us about, um, there's a technical term, uh, the, the bookish culture of the ancient world, simply because we have this interesting dynamic where in the ancient world, there's a very well-established reading culture within uh, the Greco-Roman culture, but it's almost exclusively limited to uh, men who are educated of an upper-class status that is very financially well-off. And all of those factors contribute to you know, social stratification and financial stability where they can buy and trade and get copies of, of classical works, of, of Cicero, of Plato, uh, of Homer. Christians buck all those trends. They have a, an unusually high population of women among them. They are almost exclusively, although not limited to, people within the lower classifications of society. And the majority of them, because of of that factor, are illiterate. And yet, despite all those things, despite all the patterns that we should see, they become the most prolific copiers of texts. Specifically, you know, what we now call the New Testament, but also of other writings floating uh, around the ancient Near East and other Christian writings in the, in the church for the edification of believers. And so what I'm studying is a, I'm looking at those communities and, and seeing why, although all the trends dictate that this community shouldn't be as tenacious, as prolific as they are within copying of texts and actually start to influence later down the road when Christianity is decriminalized in 313 at the Edict of Milan. The trends that the Christians start actually dictate how the rest of written documentation develops. So yeah, just looking at this ancient bookish culture, uh, yeah, that that's what I do. Well, we're certainly looking forward to what more you learn as you do your study. So I'm sure we'll have further future opportunities to talk on this, but thanks for giving us that little tidbit. Before we get started, I just want to remind our listeners that our Apologies Canada conference is coming up on March 6th and 7th, and actually Wesley's going to be there as well. Um, aren't you? You are going to be doing an interview with Dr. Daryl Bach. Saturday morning. So this is a wonderful opportunity to check out Wesley and Dr. Bach together. So I'm really looking forward to having you there. Uh, Listeners, if you want to get your tickets, the early bird pricing is still on till the end of this month. So you still have a little bit of time. So go to apologeticscanadaconference.com and sign up there. Awesome. Let's get to today's topic. Uh, Now, this Video clip has been floating around a bit on Facebook, and you forwarded this one to me, Wesley. It's with Francis Chan. Now, for those listeners who are not very familiar with some of these names, um, Francis Chan is a very prominent evangelical pastor, author, and speaker. So let me just start by playing the clip so... Listeners, you can hear for yourselves what he is saying here, and then we'll continue from there. Speaking of the body and blood of Christ, somehow, in some real way, 
again, I'm not making any like grand statements. I'm just saying I some of this stuff I didn't know. I didn't know that for the first 1500 years of church history, everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ. And it wasn't until 500 years ago that someone popularized a thought that it's just a symbol and nothing more. I didn't know that. I thought, wow, well, that's something to consider. Um, and and I, while I won't make a strong statement, I will make a statement about this. It was at that same time that for the first time, someone put a pulpit in the front of the gathering. Because before that, it was always the body and blood of Christ that was central to their gatherings. For 1,500 years, it was never one guy and his pulpit being the center of the church. It was the body and blood of Christ. And even the leaders just saw themselves as partakers. And oh man, we're not worthy, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. I say that because the church is more divided than any time in history. What does this book tell us clearly? That he does not want any divisions in his church. And for a thousand years, there was just one church. Did you know that? We're so used to growing up in a time when literally there are over 30,000 Christian denominations right now. But for the first thousand years, there was just one. What was interesting is communion was at the center of the room every time they gathered. And it wasn't a pulpit where a guy preached after studying in his office by himself for 20 hours. See, right now we've got guys like me that go in a room, study, you know? That, that's what I was doing for years. Meanwhile, other guys went in their rooms and studied, and then we started all giving different messages, so many contradicting each other, and pretty soon it's like, well, I follow Piper, I follow Chan, I follow, you know? It's just like everyone's following different guys. I'm just saying, I, I believe there was something about taking communion out of the center of the church and replace it with a gifted speaker. Not that that gifted speaker is not a part of the body of Christ and a gift to the body of Christ, but the body itself needs to be back in the center of the church. You guys, I've been dreaming about this. I've been praying about this. Oh, man, I would love it if one day in our country here in the U.S. people understood the body of Christ, that they were just a part of it and they got excited to gather and partake of the body and blood of Christ. And they celebrated together and that's why we gathered. Okay, so... Wesley, what exactly is the context here? I mean, we heard what he said, but often context can give you a better appreciation of what people are saying. So what, what is the context here? Yeah, so let me back up and just uh, give our listeners a little bit of a background as to who Francis Chan is, because a lot of them may be very familiar with who he is and his work, but some of them may not be. 
Francis Chan is, he's been a popular figure in sort of the Protestant evangelical world for some time now uh, with a lot of, of great published books, things like Crazy Love, uh, which was published in 2008, which really sort of launched his career outside of the church that he had uh, founded. He wrote a couple of other gods, or sorry, other gods, other books, um, Forgotten <laughs> God. That's why, yeah. that's why I was thinking other gods. Yeah. I'm actually looking at Looking at my copy of that book right now, Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit, and this book was actually highly recommended to me by the pastor of the church that I used to attend. And so Francis Chan certainly isn't an obscure figure anymore, is he? No, definitely not. And then in in 2011, he wrote a book called Erasing Hell uh, with Preston Sprinkle. Uh, sort of a response to guys like Rob Bell, who had come out and sort of advocated a universalism that uh, hell didn't really exist, everybody would be saved. And so, uh, you know, Francis Chan has has been around the Christian evangelical community uh, for a while and written some really great stuff. I mean, I think, um, not to speak for you, Steve, but I think we would both say that we really appreciate Francis Chan. We we love him as a, as a brother in Christ. We love the work that he's doing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that the background of that is important in understanding uh, what we just heard in that clip. Um, mm. In two, 2018, Francis Chan, uh, I think it's his most recent book, at least wrote a, a book called Letters to the Church. And if you track uh, Chan's development within his own thinking about what the church is and how it functions, it has had a few shifts over time since his days of Cornerstone Community Church. I mean, realistically, that church community, that body exploded in the 2000s and uh, became arguably what we'd refer to as a, a megachurch with a, you know, a couple thousand members within the congregation. But since then, Chan's sort of gone back and forth. He left Cornerstone and started a church planting movement in the inner city in San Francisco in around 2013. And then um, he went to Asia for a little bit, eventually coming back and then feeling convicted that he needed to go back to Asia. And it appears at least uh, from this clip and some of the things that I've been seeing floating around um, that he's back in the States. At least he is in this clip. And so right. there, we've seen a bit of a development over time leading up to, I think, what we just heard in the in that clip, shaping a little bit of his, his thinking on, on some theological issues there. When I listen to that clip, uh, there are certain things that stand out to me. I mean, some of these issues that he's raising, these are valid concerns, right? Um, I mean, I myself grew up Roman Catholic, and in the Roman Catholic Church, as with the Greek Orthodox Church, the Lord's Table is the central feature in the Mass, right? So we, that was sort of the highlight of the whole Mass, and I was taught, you know, the doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea that these elements, the bread and the wine, these are the actual body and blood of Jesus and this was something that was celebrated every Mass. Uh, now that I am ministering at a Protestant evangelical church, what I notice is that this is not as central as I have seen in the Catholic Church. And so we do celebrate communion, 
but we have a different understanding of it. For one, we don't hold to the doctrine of transubstantiation. We don't actually believe in our church that this bread and wine or juice, as is the case in our church, are the actual body and blood of Jesus. This has more of a, a symbolic meaning. It's for the purpose of remembrance. We do it once a month rather than at every service. And so there, there's that. And then a couple of other things that he mentions, like in the capital C church, there seems to be this widespread disunity with lots of different denominations. I mean, he mentions the number 30,000. We'll come back to that later. And then the last thing that he mentions is, I think this is something that he's probably struggled with himself, right? There's this sort of celebrity pastorism, if you will, that um, in different uh, Protestant churches, there seems to be this tendency for people to flock around certain uh, celebrity pastor figures, somebody who is a really gifted speaker, uh, has charisma and all that kind of stuff, and people tend to rally around that rather than something else that's more important. So I think, what would you say, like, uh, is he raising some good points there? Yeah, I think he is, Steve. I think guys like Francis Chan, they see some of these issues in the church uh, that I think are valid. I think having a shallow view of communion of the Lord's table is a problem in in a lot of evangelical churches. Not understanding why you're doing it or what the significance and the meaning behind that is, I think is a valid thing for Chan to bring up. Likewise, Christian disunity. Uh, that is a, an issue. We do have a lot of in-house division. Um, and I'm a big fan in actually multi-denominations. Um, I would take the position that unity doesn't necessarily look like uniformity. And I right. think that's a, that's a good thing. Mm. Unity actually presupposes diversity, right? Because every, if everything is uniform, that's not really unity. Unity means that there are different kinds of things that are kind of pulled together. And so the very concept of unity presupposes diversity, I'd say. Right, and we see that even within our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. The unity of God doesn't equal sameness. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are differentiated mm -hmm. from one another and have different purposes. And likewise, I think all, all the... If you look at the heart of the different Protestant denominations, they would hold fast to the essential truths of the Christian faith. But we can have internal disagreements. Um, but at the same time, I think we do have uh, a problem with a, a lot of infighting that would make people like the Apostle Paul um, – uh, grieved to see. And I, I think Chan, is, as you've just outlined, he sees that and he rightly wants to uh, correct that. Uh, likewise with sort of the celebrity pastorism that he sees. He he says, you know, the talks about the one guy in his pulpit um, and says in, in that clip, you know, uh, some people saying, I follow Piper. Some people saying, I follow Chan. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. And everyone's following different guys. Yeah. And I think there is a legitimacy to that. So I think, I think we can listen to this clip. We can hear what uh, Chan is saying and say, yes, those conclusions are correct. I think, though, where I have a, a little bit of a concern is though his meaning is true, his method to get there has a few issues. Let's take it one at a time then. Uh, let's talk about the issue of the 
sort of the, if you will, the neglect of the Lord's table, or not not so much a neglect, but maybe a shallower view, one might say, of the Lord's table, um, or perceived shallow view of the Lord's table in the Protestant evangelical churches, maybe. Uh, let's start there. Um, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so uh, what I want to do, Steve, and, and feel free to to interrupt me and, and slow me down um, if, if I'm getting too technical. I want, our, I want what I'm saying to be able to be communicated properly. But I, w- I really want to deep dive, at least to a certain level, um, you know, that area between the deep end and the shallow end where there's a little bit of a dip. Yeah. Maybe we can just hang out there for a little bit. Sounds you know, good. Go back in history. One of my passions is church history because I think where Chan really airs is in an incredibly shallow view of the things he's talking about, which I think actually works to overshadow the proper and true conclusions that he's drawing. So I want to look at a few quotes from the clip that, that we just heard. Um the first one being, he says, uh, some of this stuff I didn't know. I didn't know that for the first 1,500 years of the church, everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ. Now, the reason that that sort of uh, brought up some red flags for me is because when we look back into church history, that simply is not the case. I mean, there were debates all the way back in the Carolingian era, um, that's the the ninth century, uh, between uh, individuals uh, like there was a guy named Radbertus and Retramnus, who were two Frankish monks. They revealed that the issue of the presence of Christ at the table is not a monolithic view pre-Reformation. There are different understandings. There are different debates. I mean, we could even go back as far as the fourth century and see that major differences between Ambrose and Augustine on these issues existed. And Augustine regularly talked about the fact that the physical presence of Christ was no longer present with his people at that time. So I think to simply say that everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ what it does is it flattens out what the real conversations were, especially what we see around the year 1000. We start to see a conversation that eventually leads to what, what you talked about before, Steve, in the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, where some very profound, very intelligent thinkers at the time, drawing on the writings of Aristotle and using Aristotelian categories of what what they referred to as accidents and presence happens, that, that even though you see bread and wine, what's happening is it's being turned into the literal body and blood of Christ, that the categories of accidents and presence, the accidents, the physical substance, still look like the bread and wine to us, but in their presence, they become the literal body and blood of Christ. But that happens a thousand years after these things were written. And so there's a long history of this question of what do we mean when we talk about the real presence at, at the Lord's Supper. Because I think as Protestants, we should be comfortable with saying there is a real presence. There's something there. But where we would differ is we would say that the real presence between what we were doing, what is happening at the Lord's table, 
that there's a long history there and there's there's something to be talked about in terms of how we understand that as Protestants. And, and that leads me into the second quote that I want to pull out, which is where Chan says, it wasn't until 500 years ago until someone popularized the idea that it was just a symbol. I would assume that when he's ta- dividing the timeline that way, 1500 years and 500 years, he's really pointing to the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Um, But if you study any kind of history, what you see is that things don't seem to happen overnight like that. When there is any kind of really complex sociological phenomenon that happens, there's usually a lot of things leading up to it, building up to it over the course of a long period of time. So, for example, we, we talk about the Renaissance. It's not like, okay, on this day, at this time, at this hour, the Renaissance starts, right? I mean, it, these are kind of parameters that we put on certain eras, right? That helps us kind of make sense of, you know, point to different things for the sake of convenience. Yeah, and I think the problem is that virtually everybody from the early church through the Reformation, and I hope into the present day, would agree that there is a real presence at the Lord's table. And that for a good portion of the majority of the church, a spiritual real presence would have actually been considered just as tangible, if not even more real, than a physical presence would be. Even later confessions, uh, like that of my own personal doctrinal conviction, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, when it addresses the Lord's Supper in chapter 30, and although thoroughly Protestant, it still recognizes that while this is done in remembrance of Christ, as as we have Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12, um, it recognizes that there's a real spiritual aspect that's going on that, that sits behind that, that you know, your wedding ring holds a connotation and an understanding, um, particularly a covenantal meaning that, that goes beyond that. And I think even more so, the Lord's table, when we do this in remembrance of Christ, there's something else going on there that I think most of our confessional statements, those that are, are long enough to actually address the issue, address in a way that recognizes that there are two ordinances that Jesus himself told us to do, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and that these, although there's nothing magical about them, there is nonetheless something going on there. And the position of what I called bare memorialism, uh, that it's just a symbol I think actually Chan does recognize exists in some evangelical churches today, and I think there might need to be some correction there, or, or at least a better job of educating on the scriptural and historical position regarding that subject would be helpful. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I just wanted to remind you that I have a new children's book out that I co-authored with Rachel McKenzie called What Am I Worth? You can pick it up at Amazon or ApologeticsCanada.com. As well, I have a new book coming out in September with Zondervan. The title is Reclaimed, How Jesus Humanizes in a Dehumanized World. As you know, we are living in a challenging time, but I believe with great opportunities for sharing the gospel. This book uniquely uses our humanity to discuss the gospel and what a life of flourishing in Christ looks like that I believe is desperately needed in our world. If you would like to learn more about this resource and help us get the word out, please consider becoming a part of our book launch team and help us get this resource into people's hands. 
Those that participate will get an early edition of the book and have the opportunity to learn and interact with me on its content. If you would like to participate, let us know by emailing info at apologeticscanada.com. And now, back to the podcast. Well, let's move on to the next one then, because he mentions those 30,000 denominations. Uh, Now, again, what he's trying to get at is Christian disunity. And we said earlier that we actually agree on this. There is some real disunity that we need to address. The, The problem is real, but how Francis Chan gets there, that's our issue. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so there's there's two quotes here in particular. He prefaces it by saying, um, it was at this time, once again talking about the Reformation 500 years ago, that the first time someone put a pulpit in front of the gathering, because before that it was always the body and blood of Christ that was central to their gathering. For 1,500 years, it was never one guy and his pulpit being the center of the church. So he makes this comment about the pulpit, and, and realistically, I think one of the problems here is that churches for the first 200 years or so of Christianity were not easy to erect. Uh, Persecution in the Roman Empire towards Christians was on and off throughout this period. But what that meant was that you couldn't just, you know, have a building committee and vote on putting up a nice new building in the middle of Ephesus uh, with a steeple and a cross at the top. Uh, it, It wasn't realistic. Right. And so that's why you see house church movements for a long time. You just couldn't build a church. So what did you do? You met in your house. And that's was a big part of the church for a long time. And when it was possible to build a church, there wasn't really any type of standardization of church buildings for a long time. However, when we do start to see these buildings being built, one of the key things we do see are places where a church leader... Uh, whether you want to call him a presbyter or a pastor or an elder or a bishop or what have you, where someone, a leader in the church, has a place where they can stand at the front of the congregation and preach. Mm-hmm. And we see this in all sorts of individuals within church history who were known as great preachers. Uh, John Chrysostom in the 5th century, for example, uh, was called Chrysostom, uh, which is a Greek word that means golden-mouthed, because he was a great preacher. He was known by that because of his preaching. And um, whether we talk about Chrysostom or Cyril of Alexandria, or I've already mentioned Augustine, they all spoke from a central podium, as did many of the great preachers within the medieval era. And you see guys like Wycliffe within the, the Middle Ages, just before the Protestant Reformation, he also would have been radically, uh, he would have had a radical disagreement with the emphasis on the table at the expense of the preaching. And there's always this this understanding of word and sacrament that are both important to pre-Reformation figures. And frankly, even if you go to the earliest Reformational churches, there are some famous ones, the uh, Cathedra de Saint-Pierre in Geneva, Switzerland, which was John Calvin's church. The preacher did not preach from a central pulpit. The pulpit was on one of the main pillars to the left side of the nave in the building. So often when you see some of these classic churches, there are some prominent Anglican churches in England, and you have two pulpits, one where the preacher uh, would preach the message and one where scriptural readings were done, and they're on the left and right side of the building, and then the table in the middle. It's also, I think, pertinent to say that 
the church wasn't completely unified for the first thousand years, uh, like Francis in in his his statement seems to make it out. Uh, there was there were splits in the church, um, the Church of the East in the, in the fifth century, and the the split with the the Monophysites uh, churches in the sixth century. Those splits still exist today, and, and there were plenty of splits during the patristic period. Uh, that didn't last as long, but were serious. Um, I mentioned the persecution in the early church before. And um, in the early church, there there was a, a pretty significant issue uh, that was referred to as the Donatist controversy, uh, where literally you had churches um, who during the age of persecution, particularly right before Christianity was decriminalized, uh, the emperor uh, whose name was Diocletian, was really hard on the Christians. After Diocletian, uh, when we eventually get to Emperor Constantine and you have the decriminalization of Christianity, uh, what you have is a very precarious situation within the church because not all that long before, uh, there were situations where Christians were confronted and told basically to deny Christ or to give up their scriptures. So one of the common things that would happen is with the imperial cult, you would have to go into a specific area and offer a pinch of incense on the altar of Caesar and then utter the words, Kaiser Kurios, Caesar Caesar is is Lord. Lord. And one of the earliest statements of, of the Christian faith was, Jesus Corios, Jesus is Lord. Right. And and so it was it was basically a denial of Christ. It was an act of worship toward the emperor, and it was a denial that Jesus was Lord and that um uh Caesar was Lord. However, there were Christians who did it mm-hmm. for self-preservation or to say, you know, this doesn't really mean anything, it's just words, it doesn't mean I've actually given up who Christ is. And what happens when Christianity is decriminalized is you have a church who starts to come out of the woodwork and it's filled with people who spent their life in prison because they wouldn't uh, deny Christ, people who had family members who were martyred because they wouldn't deny Christ, in the same groups as individuals who did do these things. So then the question is, what do you do with these people who did deny Christ, at least on the surface, right? And and they're alongside people who gave their lives or, you know, whose family gave their lives, that sort of thing. I would assume there, you know, there must have been a lot of tension there and you need to sort this thing out now as the as the church. Yeah, definitely. And even church leaders. And so part of the Donatist controversy was if you had, if you were baptized by a, a minister who had denied Christ, was your baptism valid? Now, that might seem like a funny question to us today, but that was a legitimate question. Do I need to get rebaptized because the guy who baptized me was basically a, a traitor to Christ? In fact, actually, I used the word traitor. They referred to the Greek word trotidors, which is where we get our word traitor from. That's what they were referred to. Mm. And so it was this legitimate question. And eventually the, the conclusion was that, no, no, it's the, it's the act of baptism and your profession of faith that matters, not anything to do with the person who's baptizing you. You don't need to get rebaptized. But realistically, what this whole situation led to in the Donatist controversy uh, was a schism. 
that stood from the 4th to the 6th centuries. And there were around 700 Donatist churches in North Africa. So by every definition of the word, that schism marked what we today would call a separation of denominations. There were Donatist churches and there were non-Donatist churches. Mm -hmm. And I think what Chan is alluding to probably when he says that word thousand years for the first thousand years is the East-West schism that took place in, in 1054 between what eventually became the Latin West and the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek East. That's the better known one, right? Because the those church traditions are still alive and well today. And so it's a bit more visible. So that's the one that people usually refer to when they think about the schism. Yeah. But the problem with that is that it's such a broad sweeping statement that it's too simplistic of a view of history. And really it borders on, if not, you know, crosses that line of actual revisionism. As you said before, I I think it is important to bring up that he says uh, there are over 30,000 Christian denominations today. Yeah, that one really kind of stood out to me because uh, I remember a few months ago I was preaching on uh, religious pluralism. And uh, one of the things that I did was just kind of point out the kinds of different denominations that we have, right? So when somebody is on a spiritual journey, if you will, on a search for truth, it's a really, it seems like a really daunting task because it's not just different religions now. You have to think about different denominations. And, and one of the things that I brought up was look at all these different Baptist denominations alone. But one thing that I found as I was going through these different uh, denominations is that some are divided along certain theological issues. But then others are simply different conferences or groups of churches that are divided because of sheer geography. So there might be a Baptist conference in North America. There might be a Baptist conference in, say, Ireland or, or something like that, right? Um, so somewhere else, or even within the United States, there there is a conference, say, in the Northwest as opposed to the Deep South, that sort of thing, where they might believe all the same things, but just because they're because of the physical distance, they have their separate sort of conferences going. So when when I looked at that, I, I thought to myself, hmm, I keep hearing that kind of a word, like 30,000 different denominations. And I wonder how much of that is actually what we would theologically consider distinct denominations as opposed to just the brethren that are kind of separated geographically, you know what I mean? So I that threw a bit of a doubt on that number. Mm. Yeah, L- let me actually uh, tell you where that number comes from because I'm pretty familiar with the source of that number in particular. It comes from a two-volume series of the World Encyclopedia. And under World Christianity, in that two-volume uh, of the World Christian Encyclopedia, uh, it's by Brett Curian and Johnson from Oxford University Press. It breaks up Christianity into six major ecclesio-cultural blocks, and then it divides those into 300 major ecclesiastical traditions composed of 33,000 distinct denominations in 238 countries. But here's the major issue. When we actually start to look at the details of what it names, we start to see some pretty weird things. So let me just read off to you. Uh, Under the Protestant section, it says uh, it includes uh, Mormons. So it has 122 denominations within the Mormons. It includes Jehovah's Witnesses 
and, and names 229 denominations. It includes the Masons, 28 denominations, the Christadelphians, 21 denominations, the Unitarians, 29 denominations, the Christian Science Church, uh, 59 denominations. And then if you go down, it gets really weird. It names three occultist Protestant denominations. It names one called the Schismatic Catholics. It lists 435 denominations. And it actually starts to get even weirder within that when it, when it has a category called Hidden Buddhist Believers in Christ. And so realistically, if you start to break down the data, I'm pretty sure we would all agree that the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Oneness Pentecostals, the Unitarians, and it includes even Prosperity Gospel, it breaks down every independent Prosperity Gospel church as a different denomination. We're really grasping at straws here to try to get that. And if you look at denominations that are, are actually valid, the number is actually far closer to 500. That's still a pretty big number, but it's nowhere near 30,000 denominations. And I think realistically, when we go to the source of that number, it's just, it's, it's clearly done by a group who had no understanding of even what the word Christian means. I mean, to include the Masons, it uh, seems a little bit odd. I don't even think the Masons would consider themselves a Christian denomination. Mm, um, yeah. Mormons would, but th- there are there are further issues with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, it really bothers me in, in one sense that that um, this number is being thrown around because I think, I don't actually think it's Francis Chan's fault. I think it's a little bit of a, a, it's twice baked. He's heard it from somewhere else. In fact, I think all of this stuff, um, I don't fault Francis Chan in one way because I think he's looking at second, third, fourth, fifth hand sources that are portraying things in a certain light. And whether it's a, a naive view of church history or it's a number like 30,000 denominations, I think it's just an ignorance of the actual evidence and data that we see. But I think this is a good reminder, Steve. I think it's a good reminder that us as Christians follow the truth. And by that, we need to be diligent in our truthful representation of even our own history. And church history in particular is a big one because our, admittedly our, our knowledge of church history in a lot of Protestant communities only really goes back as, as far as guys like Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. And, and you might even go back to the Reformation. But pre-Reformation, I think we assume that, you know, the, the church was lost anyways, so who cares? You know, it was all messed up. Um, but God has worked through the church in all of history. He's had a remnant. Um, Martin Luther didn't just wake up one day and become Protestant and then the church was saved. Um, you had pre-reformers, uh, guys like Wycliffe, mm-hmm. and then throughout time. And I, I think this is a good reminder for us. Uh, a, to say, you know, as, as I think we, we've said um, appropriately, there are issues here that, that Francis Chan is highlighting. Uh, you know, Christian disunity, um, a shallow view of the Lord's table, celebrity pastorism, um, which I think is what he's talking about when he says, you know, to, to just one guy at a pulpit. Those are valid things that we need to take seriously. I think this is all a good reminder to say, okay, 
we can learn from the perceived mistakes of how Francis Chan is talking very candidly. And we can use this as a, as a teachable moment, as a learning experience, so that we ourselves don't fall into overgeneralizing the faith or overgeneralizing other people's faiths and have the due diligence to do a little bit of homework yeah. in this kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, um, I think we're running out of time here. When you're having fun, time really flies. And yeah, this is the kind of stuff that uh, we get really excited over. So you can see how much of a uh, how much of nerds we are. But uh, I hope this uh, episode was as enjoyable to you as it was to us. Before I let you go, Wesley, is there anything that's coming up in the near future that our listeners should be aware of? Something you're doing? Oh boy, good good question. I have a couple of events coming up. Um, at the end of the month, the last day of January, I'm actually doing an interfaith dialogue at McMaster University uh, with a rabbi and a, a Muslim imam on the topic of secularism. And it's not a debate per se. We're going to just talk about secularism within our different uh, respective communities. But I'm really going to use it as an opportunity to share the gospel, uh, to say, you know, yeah, secularism, it, it it's really pretty empty. And realistically, without Christ, so is every other worldview. So um, you can you can definitely uh, pray for that. Uh, I'd appreciate it. I'm preaching a couple times in the GTA at a number of different churches, my own church, and then a, a few others. And in uh, February, I, I'm going to be uh, doing a couple of uh, different talks at Laurier University and uh, potentially at uh, Waterloo University and uh, Western University. So, yeah, lots of lots of opportunities to present uh, the Christian faith. And then, of course, the, the upcoming Apologetics Canada Conference as, as we prepare for that. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate that, Steve. You know, there's lots of um, things coming up. As always, if, if you want to know more about what I'm doing, you can pop over to wesleyhuff.com and there's an upcoming events tab and you can just click that and see you know all the things that i'm going to be up to and places that i'm going to be going right on wesley it's wonderful having you on the podcast hey listeners like you just heard head on over to wesleyhuff.com check out what is what is up to and be sure to pray for him the kinds of stuff that he's doing needs a lot of prayer i mean he's really throwing himself into the ring, so to speak, to stand up for truth. And so please cover him in your prayers. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. 